I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, Shanti. Hi, Lynx. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Getting ready to move. Five more days and goodbye, Toronto. This is exciting. I have seen photos of where you're going and it's just so beautiful. And I can't wait till you set it all up and the cats are out there. I can't wait for all the cat videos and photos that I'm sure I'm going to get from you of them just loving the outdoors and you loving the outdoors and mm-hmm. and what a perfect time to move to like you got the rest of the summer to just you know be happy and get out of the I'm city excited to go swimming there's a couple of little lake spots around so I'm looking forward to that that's the um, one thing about living in downtown Toronto I'm just so desperate to go swimming right now it's been like so hot and perfect for that and there's really nowhere to go Right. Yeah. Pools uh, pools won't be open this summer, but um, I have a hose. So if you want to come over this week, I can just... Hose me down? Yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing, actually. It's been uh, so humid that uh, I would take a hose and... You got to do what you got to do. But yeah, we've been busy packing, um, doing all of the, like, you know, the little things you have to remember with like canceling your hydro and changing your addresses and stuff. But uh, even though we've been busy, we I'm still committed to doing my anti-racism work every day. Yeah, <laughs> you know we can't let that momentum kind of wind down. We have to keep just keep going every single day. One thing I've been doing that I find is pretty helpful is I follow Nikki Cardoza. Sorry, Nicole Cardoza, 
and she sends out a newsletter, which is an anti-racism daily newsletter. So it's a really another really great way to stay educated and yeah, just want to like encourage our white friends to keep signing petitions and donating money if you can and subscribing to like a newsletter like this so that you're doing something every day. That's right. People got to remember this is a movement and we got to keep it going. It's got to keep progressing for things to really change. So yeah, let's not forget that this is important right now to stay on top of. That's right. How are you, Links? Well, I'm good. I had a really nice week in the sun and I've been reading some great books lately. And uh, this episode is one of the books I've been reading and I really enjoyed it. And it was interesting because I realized I don't think I've done a hip hop episode before. And I didn't really know that much about the hip hop world and hearing Corinne Steffen's perspective on it and everything was really interesting. And I actually did some more research and I found a couple other hip hop related books from women or wives of uh, some hip hop stars. So I- I'm excited because we can cover this genre uh, again, for sure. Okay, so the only other hip hop episode that we've done was when we interviewed the author, Kathy Eandley when after she wrote her book god save the queens so we'll link that in the show notes and we'll link nicole cardoza's work in the show notes as well and yeah okay i'm looking forward to this episode that you're presenting today links this is a heavy episode for sure corinne has been through a lot so i just want to warn people there's a lot of abuse in this uh sexual abuse physical abuse unfortunately like so many of the other women that you know we've covered, she has had her ups and her downs for sure. So I just want to let everyone know that. And Corinne actually calls her book, which was Confessions of a Video Vixen, um, she calls it a cautionary tale. Mm. She says she wrote it for young women who sort of dream of that rich and famous celebrity lifestyle to kind of let them know it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There is one paragraph I wasn't a huge fan of in her introduction. Uh, I did feel like I needed to to read it aloud, though. She said, The top reason a woman finds herself in a rap video sprawled undressed over a luxury car while a rapper is saying lewd things about her is a lack of self-esteem. I know it sounds cliche, but no one who values, loves, or knows herself would allow herself to be placed in such a degrading position. Finding myself and learning to value who I am was one of the biggest hurdles I had to overcome. Now, I'm just not a fan of her blanketing a statement like that over all women, right? Right. That's her story. That's That was her journey. But as we know, we're all different. So I'm sure there are some women who were in music videos and felt empowered the whole time and never had the same kind of struggles that she had. Yeah. But this is where she, this is where Corinne's coming from. So is Corinne saying she did those things and it was coming from a place of insecurity and absolutely yes. So and then she's saying many of if you're doing that it because this was my experience it means that it was also must be everybody else's experience. That's okay. what I gathered from it just because she's saying like if you're shaking your ass and all that it's probably because you're dealing with some personal issues, but yeah, 
that's uh, we we know that's not always the case so i just didn't want i but i can understand while corinne was writing this she like that was her overwhelming feelings that she was kind of struggling with and growing out of so fair enough it's her experience exactly it's her book all right well let's get into it this week's episode is brought to you by best fiends best fiends has challenging puzzles but it's a casual game that anyone can play I'm currently on level 243. Oh my god, Shanti, that is so impressive compared to my level 103. Well, I play every day, sometimes a couple of times a day. I love how they've not only upped the challenges, but also keep it fresh and exciting with new levels, vibrant visuals, and fun events. Yeah, I love all of that too. It's been a really fun distraction while I've been social distancing. I really love to relax on my balcony each night, and I usually play a few games then. Worried about eating up your monthly data? Well, good news. Best Fiends does not require the internet to play, so keep on leveling up. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect Tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So Corinne was born August 24th, 1978 in St. Thomas on the Virgin Island. Life was never easy for Corinne. Her mother, Josephine, was an unhappy woman who didn't have many friends and really focused her life around always having a man. There was a constant revolving door of not-so-great choices throughout her childhood. Um, Her mother had two more daughters, and all three of them were by different fathers, and she is not quite sure who her sister's dads are. She felt her mother used all the kids, kind of hoping that the pregnancies would get the men to stick around, but they never did. Uh, She talks about being embarrassed by her mother. She was sort of the talk of the town and her schoolmates like knew who her mother was and would make fun of her for her mother's choices, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Beyond that, her and her mother just never got along. She uses the word hate. She hated her mother and her mother hated her for her youth, for her intelligence, for her standing on the island. Even though she was young and her dad had left, he was well known and had owned a few businesses which employed many of the islanders. He was originally from New York City, and she says people would often stop them on the street and tell her, like, oh, you look so much like your dad. Your dad was so smart, just like you. And these encounters sometimes happen in front of her mother, who would dismiss them and say negative things back. She said, my mother always made me feel like I was less than a person. We were in competition from the day I arrived. I've heard stories like that before. Exactly. Yeah, it is interesting. There's so many parallels in the stories that we tell. Her mother was only 18 when she had Corinne. Her father was 26. He lived on the island until she was about six years old. And when he left, her mother and her moved into her grandma's house. By the time her sisters were born, some other relatives had moved in as well. In all, there were 10 of them sharing four bedrooms, one bathroom, and had no hot water, no washing machines, of course, no air conditioning. They would boil water for baths, and she'd have to share the bath water with her siblings. They would collect rainwater to, to use for laundry. Uh, they did have a wonderful backyard, though, filled with fruit trees. You know how much I love the fruit trees. 
I do. <laughs> Banana, papaya, guava, avocado, passion fruit. Can you imagine? So Corinne was a very, very smart student and known for her academic achievements. And she was always featured in the school plays and events. In 1983, she was invited to the opening of a big resort on the island. And she got to recite some of her poems that she'd written and cut the ribbon at the ceremony. So another parallel that we see often, her grandmother was her biggest supporter and would be there in those moments when her mother wouldn't bother to show up. In fact, she even called her grandmother Ma. So Mm -hmm. the older Corinne got, the more contentious and violent her relationship with her mother grew. I'm not going to go into the details of the child abuse, but it was very bad. And more than once, her grandmother would end up coming to her rescue. Life changed when Corinne was 10 and her mother decided to move to Florida. She no longer had her grandmother there to help support her at home. And her mother was just as awful as ever. And when they moved, she kind of became a bit of a social outcast at school. She no longer was the academic standout that she was on the island. So she really kind of struggled to find her place in Florida. She talks about her mother doing things to make her feel small and like no one would notice her and the feelings she got when at age 10, she had her first kiss with a boy in her class. She said, I felt loved. I felt pretty. I was acknowledged and I wanted more. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're not getting that love at home, the way that other kids get that love when you finally get that, you know, and and the attention, I get it. You, you want more. So when she was 13, she became best friends with a girl named Charlene. By some miracle, Corinne's mother actually liked Charlene. And for the first time agreed to let Corinne like go to the mall alone and kind of gave her a little bit more freedom. Charlene told her mother, Corinne's mother, that her mom would pick them up from the mall when they went but to Corinne's surprise instead they were picked up by a group of older boys she says about 17 and older I don't like this yeah this is um this is going to a heavy place so she was shocked since Charlene had never mentioned these boys but she trusted her friends so they all ended up going to some guy's apartment She attempted to lose her virginity to one of the guys that she was crushing on there named Ronnie. She was young and her body was not ready for sex. So that didn't happen. And by that point, she's starting to realize she was a little over her head in this situation. And she wanted to get home before her mother, you know, began to freak out. But then one of the men in the apartment who was kind of threatening and clearly the boss of things took that Ronnie guy aside and when they came back into the room she realized something weird is happening but this guy she calls him Rodney he came up to him and said the words that she was kind of longing to hear which was we're going to take you home so she's like oh thank god so they get back into the car and when the car was driving to her apartment suddenly it didn't stop no yeah so they ended up taking her to an abandoned house where yeah Ronnie began molesting her but was interrupted because the neighboring houses noticed activities and someone yelled call the police so then they ended up getting back into the car then they took them to a motel she recounts a very brutal rape 
and the others just sitting on the bed, like watching and kind of laughing about it. And this included Charlene, though I think that was out of fear that it, like if she spoke up, she would be the one raped. Mm-hmm. They ended up staying the night at that hotel because the guys weren't going to let them go anytime soon. But in the morning, her and Charlene woke up a little early and they managed to make a run for it. And they got out together and Charlene's mom picked them up. And of course, Corinne is now terrified about her mother, like what her mother's reaction is going to be to all of this. And it was, of course, as horrible as you can imagine. She beat her. She never thought to ask you know, what happened? Are you okay? So to me, it really sounds like she experienced PTSD throughout this whole terrifying ordeal. And she began wetting the bed every night, which of course her mother gave her crap for as well. And she just really withdrew and lost like all of her self-esteem. And she had gone from being one of the smartest in the class to barely passing at this point. She was now skipping school all the time hanging out with the boys, drinking, smoking. Uh, When she was home, she would confine herself to her room to stay away from her mother, really. And what she would do in there is just read ferociously. And music was also very important to her. So she'd sing along to the radio and imagine herself in this happier, better life. And she was writing a lot of poetry and filling up endless journals. She was always a writer. The beatings from her mother continued, and when they were particularly bad, she sought help from the school counselor, but her mother actually ended up doing a number on them, painting her out like she was a demon child. The school actually kind of sided with her mother. Mm-hmm. Back in St. Thomas, everyone knew her mother was not you know, the greatest woman, but here in Florida, her mother had worked really hard to change that. And she actually severed all ties with her mother's side of the family. She, you know, only spoke to her dad's side. And Corinne didn't know them growing up. So her family only knew what her mother had told them about her. And she also recounts this really heartbreaking Christmas where she's with her family and they're all together unwrapping gifts. And she knelt down in front of the tree to find hers and then realized not one of them had bought her a gift for Christmas. The story's so sad. It's 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 terrible. Her childhood is just uh, full of heartbreaking. Trauma. Yeah. And yeah, her mother basically brainwashed the whole family into like not showing her love. So there came a point where Corinne decided to fight back and she punched her mother after her mother, you know, hit her once and her mother yelled, you want to fight? I will kill you. And Corinne knew she probably would. So that really made Corinne realize, like, I have to get out of here. So she packed a small bag and she ran away. She can't remember what she packed except for her Wu-Tang tape, which was her most treasured item and would become the soundtrack to her, as she put it, first taste of voluntary freedom. Cool. So she stayed with friends and friends of friends and soon met some other runaways. They all slept in an abandoned house. Charlene came along with her. She says they never discussed what happened the night of the rape. Uh, She ended up basically living on a street for the month until one day her mother, along with the Tampa Bay police, found her. Now, her mother had already been 
doing a number on the police, telling them what a terrible child she was and all that. And basically, Corinne begged for her life to the police officer. She was like, don't let my mother take me. Like, please don't put me with her again. And they told her she'd have to either go to like juvie or home. And she was like, take me to juvie. This is, I mean, I don't want to be back with my mother. Mm-hmm. And luckily, she actually found a good cop who realized clearly she's scared and she's telling the truth. And he asked about her dad and she didn't know exactly where he was. But the cops said, if we track him down, would you go live with him? And she was like, absolutely. So right then they worked it out. They found him. They were going to call him the next day to see if that would work out. But she had to go home first. But she didn't care because she knew, okay, I'm making plans to get out of here now. So her dad was no longer living in New York, as she thought, but in Phoenix. And they contacted him. He said, come on down. So in January of 1994, Corinne headed to Scottsdale, a suburb, where life was vastly different. Her dad lived well and gave her the regular kind of freedoms that teenagers get. She could go out. She could see her friends. Sometimes she'd get in trouble. She stayed out past curfew. Friends were pretty wealthy. They hung out in the backyards. Her dad had a pool. They spent like a lot of time back there. It was lovely, but it didn't last. Uh, within the first year, her dad ended up getting married to a girl, his girlfriend that, that he recently had a child with. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the mother might have been going through postpartum depression because she kind of withdrew and Corinne kind of took care of the baby and some of the other family members. She had a half brother and a grandma that lived there as well. And the dynamic of the house, once the baby came in and it was getting stressful to her father and he began to struggle financially and taking out his frustration on the family. So within a year during the summer of the, her 11th grade, Corinne ran away again. This whole thing about it's either Juvie going back to your mom and then like maybe that one cop that wasn't the worst piece of scum ever. It was still like a bad choice, right? It was still irresponsible. Like absolutely. And no help from anybody. Yep. Because there's no systems in place to help in that kind of situation. So it was like, okay, we'll just like put a bandaid over it and go see your father. And that didn't work out either. So and it's, it is so scary. That cop is probably a piece of shit, too. It is interesting, too, because, like, obviously, you think about how many kids have taken that huge step of finally admitting to their counselors or something that I need help. Like, there's abuse happening here. And then they don't believe you. They Then your parent comes and, you but know. They don't care. Exactly. Yeah. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. 
or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. She had a boyfriend at the time named Reggie, and she ended up moving in with him and his mother, who she also kind of became close with. Now, Reggie's mom worked as an exotic dancer at an all-nude club and got Corinne a job there. And she was still underage. She was 17. Mm -hmm. So this is when Corinne's alter ego, Yazette Santiago, was born. She says, In order to get up on stage every night and dance like I loved and meant it, I needed to put forth the persona of a fearless woman so the scared little girl who felt unworthy, unattractive, and unwanted was gone. In her place was Yazette, a woman child who was everything Corinne wanted to be. Beautiful, sexy, confident, and independent. Mm. So in no time at all, she was pulling about a thousand a night, which unfortunately led to a rivalry between Reggie's mom and her. And that kind of relationship dissolved her relationship with Reggie and that her mother. But she was killing it at that point financially, so... It didn't really bother her. Corinne says she started every night dancing to Come Down by Bush. So I thought maybe we'd play a clip of that first. All right. More I come, more I try. All police are paranoid. So am I. So is the future. So are you. Be a creature. Do you say? Do you do? When it all interesting choice yeah so by this point corinne was kicking ass at the club she was now a main attraction she'd mastered her own signature dance move that got her many regulars and would often do private parties for like the arizona cardinals and other celebrity athletes and people like that at one event she ended up meeting cool g rap who is a pretty influential rapper and at the time he was 27 and Corinne is still only 17 at this point. But she's going by the name Yazette Santiago, remember? And she also mentions having state ID and a social security card and W-2s that said that she was 21. Mm -hmm. So she ends up staying the night with cool G-Rap. I'm going to call him G from now on. Okay. And in the morning, he was like, I'm booking his plane tickets to New York. You're staying with me. You're going to be my wife. And she says, from that day on, I was his wife in every way. I don't know if they were actually properly married, but I've seen video clips of her and everything. And she does refer to him as like husband and wife. So whether it was legal or not, that's what they were, basically. So immediately she moves in with him after their little New York vacation into this big house. But pretty much from the get-go, it became clear that what G meant by wife, to me, sounds like servant. 
and she was sort of expected to follow the rules. You clean, you do the laundry, you cook four times a day. And well, he did, of course, whatever he wanted, right? He also forced her to call him daddy. No. Yeah. He began to be very violent with her as well. She says, from that first slap in the face, I was subservient, which was just the way he wanted me. So Corinne explains that at this point, she was just so tired of, you know, running, tired of taking care of herself, tired of stripping. She was just in a place that she she kind of felt stuck. And as with many abusive relationships, there was plenty of good moments in between all the bad that would make her second guess things and stay. She also explains how he educated her, taught her about the kind of lifestyle she wanted. He dressed her. He taught her about looking good, about food. Uh, She said, G taught me a lot about being a woman, but he taught me to be an unsure and abused one, too. So there is, of course much controlling over her. He wouldn't let her wear makeup or certain types of outfits. She couldn't change her hair too much. Uh, She wasn't really allowed to talk on the phone. Over time, of course, the outbursts got more violent. Within the first four months of their relationship, Corinne lost 40 pounds and she now weighed 96 pounds. (sighs) Yeah. She recalls G's ex-girlfriend coming over and like actually crying at the sight of her bruised and swollen body. But she just she was in a place where she couldn't leave him yet. One horrific night, he ended up cracking her ribs and she had to go to the hospital where, of course, he lied and said she tripped over a chair and she covered for him. One day, Corinne decided she couldn't take it anymore and she took a full bottle of painkillers and ended up getting her stomach pumped at the hospital She says she did think about suicide quite often. All the abuse that was happening, she ended up having multiple abortions or miscarriages. And she actually did very badly want to have a child. She felt if she had this other life that she had to be responsible for, it would give her strength to get healthy and to leave G and I guess something to live for, really. And she finally did get pregnant with her son, but that didn't lighten the abuse. After a particularly cruel night, G kicked her out three months pregnant and forced her to go to a shelter. Uh, She ended up going back there. And I assume he kind of did that to be like, you either follow my rules or you're going to be living in a shelter. Right. Mm -hmm. She was now sleeping with him like against her wishes and. She talks about him constantly making her perform oral sex on him and calling it her apology. Oh my God, this is It's terrible. I know, I know. So Corinne now is 19 years old and she had her baby. I'm going to read what she says about the birth. The most amazing thing happened to me. As my son was being delivered from my body... The love I thought I felt for G automatically transferred to the new man in my life. From that moment, at 12.11 on the afternoon of January 19th, 1998, I no longer loved Cool G Rap. Wow. Yeah. So, of course... Did she get out of there? Yes. Yes. Now all of her attention is completely on their baby. G wasn't happy about that. It only took about 20 days for G to get violent with her again, but this time she was holding her son, and of course that changed everything. She decided to call the police. She had him arrested for domestic violence. Karen knew that she had to get away from him, but that was going to take a little bit of time and money and planning. The good thing was that G was working on an album and doing promotional tour work and stuff, so he 
was away for a couple months here and there. And she kind of took that time to work on herself, her health. She got back some of the freedoms that she lost. She started experimenting with makeup and listening to music that G wouldn't let her. G was apparently so insecure that he wouldn't let her listen to and enjoy others, other men's music because it was like a slight against him somehow. So yeah, with him away, Corinne began to get a real education in hip hop. She mentions discovering Tupac, Nas, DMX, Biggie, Jay-Z. And she says she listened to a lot of Lauryn Hill at the time and felt connected to her words. She says, I listened to hip hop's men talk about bad bitches and I wanted to be one. They gave me a vision to strive for. Instead of playing the men right now, how about we play some Lauryn Hill? Let's do it. So with G away, Karen was growing and building up the confidence to leave him. But G was kind of deciding to leave her as well. He had been gone for three months. She found out that he was living with an ex in New York City. He even stopped sending money to help her and the baby. He stopped taking her calls. Eventually, one of G's friends came by with money to help her. By the time G came back, he'd missed his son's first birthday. Uh, He promised to give her money to help her move out but he kept holding off giving it to her and he actually moved in an ex-girlfriend and Corinne would be like trapped upstairs while they were having fun downstairs so that went on for like three weeks he promised her 3500 but ended up only giving her a thousand and he also found her an apartment that was just an, like an hour outside the city and Corinne realized this is just another way of him controlling me And she realized, I need to do something about this. So she just packed her bags. She called a friend to come get her and her son in the middle of the night and closed that three-year chapter. Good. Yeah. So the first thing she did was get a flight for her and her son to Los Angeles, where they were going to stay at G's former manager. Uh, His name is Chuck. They were going to stay at his house while he was away. Chuck was now working for Dr. Dre's Aftermath Records. And they had stayed in touch unbeknownst to G. And she'd only intended to stay the week to begin sorting out the details of her new life. But of course, she began to fall in love with L.A. On one of her last nights there, she met Marquis from the Two Live crew who gave her his number and made her promise to call him the next day. And she also noticed another man at this club that night, rapper Ice-T. And he really stood out to her, but she didn't need him that night. So the next day, she ends up calling this marquee guy, like she promised. And she told him her story, like what she'd been going through and everything. And he was like, you know what? I think you should meet someone. I think someone I know can help you. Next thing she knew, none other than Ice-T was phoning her, asking her to meet up. So they did. She told him everything about her life. He gave her $300 and told her, 
if you ever need anything while in Phoenix to call him, mm-hmm. uh, she had to go back there to kind of tie up the loose ends. And Ice-T also said, like, when you're ready to move to L.A., call me. I'll make sure you're taken care of. I'll make sure you're settled. Let's play some Ice-T. Yeah. This is Ice-T talking to you, boy. I'm going to tell you what time it is. Yo, it's time for me to pump off the volume. No problem, the record's revolving. Evil's the mixer, I'm the rap trickster. Paparazzi's on the bum rush for pictures. Ice, cooling, yo, colder than ever. Punk executioner, he pulls the lever. Rotate the wax, then cut and axe the tracks. Push up the levels till the red lights max. Don't try to size up, you better wise up to the rap criminals. We're on the rise up, we're selling dope. Till we succeeded, dope beats and lyrics, no beepers needed. For this drug deal, I'm the big wheel. The dope I'm selling, you don't smoke, you feel. Out on the dance floor, on my world tour. I'm selling dope and eat. All right. So, on Twitter. you follow him? Yeah, he's funny. He's, he's awesome, yeah. He's a good guy in the story. <laughs> so, for the next 10 months, she worked hard in Phoenix doing multiple jobs. She tried to work out a friendship with G for their son's sake, but... He, of course, still, you know, was trying to be controlling. She talked to Ice-T often, and he was a real support to her during those months. He would send money to her if necessary or just listen and give her advice, whatever she needed. He really encouraged her to move to L.A. He told her, you know, you're meant to be something greater than what being in Phoenix will bring you. You got to get out there. Like, you're special. So Karun really knew she had to get her stuff together and move out there. But she had her son, right? Right. She decided, because she knew G would not never harm their son, she decided that she had to leave her son with G for a little bit in order to get settled in L.A. for them. Mm. So that's what she did. She basically one day just dropped her son off at G's place and did not stop driving until she made it to L.A. So she talks about spending almost every day with ICE, She says, Ice taught me a lot about how to make it in L.A., where to eat, where to shop, how to negotiate, how to know my worth professionally. They spent many nights at the hottest clubs, but also many nights alone as well. I believe Ice had a longtime girlfriend at the time, so there was a clear understanding that they weren't exclusive or that this wasn't going to be it wasn't like a regular type of relationship. It was like it was understood what, what it was. Yeah. And within a month of moving to L.A., she collected her son from G so that they could be together again. Good. Yeah. So Corinne was still determined to have fun nights and she would hire a sitter and go out to the club. She met multiple people within the first few months. Ja Rule was one of them. He was busy career wise during the first four months of them knowing each other, though. But they had a relationship over the phone. They were constantly talking to each other. And during that period, and this was such a bizarre piece of the book, and it was funny to read. She also met Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit, <laughs> And uh, he had this cockiness to him that she somehow found desirable. She says, after meeting him, I could smell the power oozing from his pores. And I was yeah. so turned on that I know I needed a shower after this encounter. <laughs> I need a shower after that sentence. Right? To each their own, but... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> so after four months of chatting with Ja Rule over the phone, he was back in town. They were ready to have a night together, and one night ended up being five nights. And she talks about giving him 
a blowjob and feeling for the first time during a sexual act that it was she who had the power. There you go. Yeah. And of course, yeah, this was obviously a super powerful moment for her, but it also led to a nickname that sort of stuck with her over the years. If you look her up online, her nickname was Superhead. (gasps) Yeah. Now, she says it was an inside joke between her and Ja and the Murder, Inc. crew that he was a part of. But the more people that heard it, it kind of turned into this bigger thing. And she says, basically, it turned into her scarlet letter and was taken completely out of context. Uh, And Yeah, and I know that she doesn't like being called that now, obviously, because it was meant to be like a personal powerful inside joke and it turned into this crazy thing anyway let's talk about her first date with fred durst she mentions yeah oh you're gonna get a good laugh out of this she mentions that he wasn't flashy like the other hip-hop guys she knew and that made her want to impress him even more so they go out to dinner he orders five different entrees just for himself she got one And then she says, for the next 45 minutes, I watched him move. He was grand, taking tiny forkfuls from each dish and repeating that move a few times. Then he was done, leaving the majority of the food behind. I'd never really wasted food before. And right then, I knew that one day I would be able to eat whatever I wanted however much I wanted and summon someone to take my plates away in my inexperienced mind. It was the height of glamor. Uh, (laughs) I do. I mean, it's, it's nice to see though. Like now she realizes how ridiculous that is, but I'm just picturing someone on a date with Fred Durst and he's ordering five things, barely eating any of it. And like that being attractive. Nobody needs that much money. I'd be like, where bring take out <laughs> bring that Nobody. home with me. Yeah. She says Fred had an air of prestige to him and he she just really wanted to like be around him and she wanted him to like her. He asked to take photos of her body, which she allowed, of her breasts, and she says, As crazy as it sounds, I thought the idea was sexy at the time. He said that he wanted to upload the photos onto his computer to look at later. Interesting time. Yeah. Uh, They didn't sleep together on the date, even though she wanted to. And she actually felt rejected and was like teary eyed that he only kissed her. It's that sounded condescending when I said cool. You know what? If you want to take pictures of your breasts and upload them on somebody's computer, all power to you. Oh, for sure. Come off as like, I'm judging her. She shouldn't have done that. If that's what she wanted to do, then good for her. Absolutely. I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Who might have judged? So in the book, she mentions meeting one of the most significant members of the hip hop community, but she doesn't name him. She only calls him Papa. But I Googled it and she did reveal who Papa was in her second book, uh, The Vixen Diary. It's not. He's he's uh, passed away by now. Oh, okay. She this was interesting because she says that she only ever named him in the second book. It's Method Man, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, but she only named him because her publishers threatened to take away her advance, and she felt like she needed to do that for her and her son to, you know, financially to live. But I think she 
or maybe she doesn't regret doing it, but like she really did not want to have to name him and she felt forced into it. So yeah, Papa's Method Man. She met him on set of a music video that that guy Chuck invited her along to, and he would become an important person in her life, but more on him later. Just wanted to throw it. She's meeting all these guys within like the first six months of being in LA. So it's a whirlwind of influential hip-hop men all around her. If you're wondering how she has time for all of that and her child, it's thanks to Ice-T who's helping her out financially and letting her kind of let loose. But that spring, Ice-T got his role on Law & Order SVU. So he ended up having to move to New York for her to do that. But he told her, you're going to make it, and when you do, you're going to buy me a white Benz. Now, I'm not sure if she's kept that promise yet, but in the book, she says like that she still remembers that she owes him that. And so, yeah, Ice-T is kind of out of her life now, but he really set her up and showed her L.A. and got her started. Cool. So after a lot of cat and mouse games with Fred Durst, she finally did see him again at his office. She goes into some detail here. Apparently, he's pierced down there. And apparently he also said, make me come and I'll marry you. Ew. Yeah. But she has an interesting groupie quote here that I wanted to put in. I was turned on by the fact that this was a man who so many women wanted and this man wanted me. On stage, he commanded crowds of people, millions. And at this very moment, I commanded him. It was as if he and I had traded places in the world and I was important. At that moment and moments like it, I didn't feel inadequate or mediocre. So that's relatable. Yes. And she's also, as we were talking about before, like she definitely, because of all the things she'd went through in her life, her self-esteem is low. And in those moments, like that's, it was really like, feeling powerful and confident in herself that she was chasing after as opposed to the, the men really right like mm-hmm. they were just a way to get that feeling unfortunately that basically changed the instance it was over she says few words were spoken and i was basically dismissed it was awkward and plain awful reality set in i'd allowed myself to be seduced by the dream and the wake-up call was harsh and unpleasant i left fred's office feeling dejected and even more than that naive and silly so fred durst was an asshole shocker the guy who ordered five (laughs) entrees and was like just a little bit here and a little bit here take it away exactly Uh, so uh, he wasn't oozing confidence he was just oozing like cis white male privilege pretty much yeah so throughout that summer she continued to see ja rule who did the opposite for her confidence he built her up he made her feel amazing she says that they would stay at fancy hotels and walk around in their bathrobes party all the time she was taking ecstasy all the time having sex all the time it was just a lot and after four months or four months after meeting method man she finally had the opportunity to see him again as well. She has a lot of quotes again that I'm sure resonate with a lot of women. When she saw him again, she thought, I was with him. I had admired him from afar as a young girl and dreamed of this moment almost half a decade before. And here he was, and he was interested in me. 
So she has a few hot paragraphs talking about the incredible sex they had. But again, these these guys were kind of going in and out, like not all of them lived in L.A. So he would catch a flight or they were busy touring and things like that. Yeah. It was around this she time. She's around 21 years old now. And she met 18 year old Ray J, who is the brother of singer Brandy. Do you remember Brandy? I do. Yeah, I had her CD. I used to love Brandy. Yeah, I think when the Brandy and Monica duet came out, I went and bought both their individual CDs, and both their CDs had those that song on it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I liked both Brandy and Monica. Yes, me too. And Ray J, I guess, had a career as well. I don't know many of his songs, though. But she says that meeting him was one of the happiest times in her life, and she really kind of fell in love with him, and it felt official in a way that it wasn't with the others. She, you know, they would go out, they would hold hands, they were in a relationship, basically. Yeah. Uh, she was still juggling Method Man, and Method Man was a pro- apparently unhappy about Ray J. I mean, these guys were with other women as well, so. She also did maintain her ongoing relationship with Ja Rule, and she says their relationship really became more intense. We ate, we drank, we slept together, our sex became a constant in my life. And with Ja Rule, it was like a lot more of a party situation Mm -hmm. it was it wasn't just jaw it was like the murder ink crew that she really had fun with so 21 years old yeah hello right she says you know she did enter these relationships with ice tea jaw roll method man knowing they had other relationships but none were married and i think she also knew she wasn't the only woman that these guys were rolling around with either, right? So yeah. sometimes she would have threesomes with Ja too, or sometimes she'd see Ja go off with other women. Basically, she says, most of all, we were friends who also had incredible sex. Cool. Yeah. So she's got her like wild man. She's got her, you know, friendly lay. That's like method man more. She's got her actual boyfriend, kind of Ray J thing. And then Dr. Dre oh, came yeah, into girl. the mix. Yeah. So it's interesting the way she talks about Dr. Dre. She says she wasn't really attracted to him and their personalities didn't mesh, but he was a very powerful man and she felt important while around him. So again, she's kind of chasing. That's an interesting dynamic. I don't really like you, but. (laughs) But you, when I'm around you, I feel powerful because I know you're powerful. And yeah, she slept with Dr. Dre and she says like it wasn't really worth it and that it was another example of her doing without thinking for all the wrong reasons. So she went back to the comfort of Ray J, who happened to be working on an album at the time. She recalls the day that Ray was in the recording booth singing his song, Where Do We Go From Here?, which is about falling in love with someone. And she says that both of them were like crying while he sang it and that she really did love Ray but she knew that their time was coming to an end because, and I'm quoting, I knew one day he would know who I had been with and render me unworthy of the affection he was now showing me. So huge double standard there. Yeah. Interesting though. She yeah. also says that she was greedy and she wanted it all and she wasn't ready to settle down. She she wanted to have Ja and Method Man on call and good for her. She just, she knew she wasn't ready for that kind of, intense committed i guess relationship sure. yeah so she ended up kind of self-sabotaging her relationship with ray or maybe just beating him to the punch i don't know she told him about method man he called her some cruel names and that kind of ended her thing with ray 
she does say she cried for six months over him like she felt that strongly toward him but she just knew it wasn't the right time or place i guess um, she could also sense that her time with Jaw was running its course. He had girls all over LA, not just her. She read an article at the time that mentioned his high school girlfriend that he was still with and who was five months pregnant, which was about the same amount of time that she had been sleeping with him. And that kind of made her feel foolish. Yeah. And reading that really flared up her feelings and it resulted in a public fight with him at a club as she watched him like flirt with all these other women as well. She just kind of blew up one day. And the fact that she was feeling that at all was kind of a sign that this had to end because obviously they weren't even in a re relationship. So that was a blow for her as well. But bigger things were ahead. While visiting a friend at Def Jam Records, the famed music video director Hype Williams spotted her and was like, hey, want to be in my next music video? Which was shooting the week later. And that was going to be for the Jay-Z song, Hey Poppy. Hmm. Yeah. So Corinne's friend Chuck came in handy here as he was friends with Jay-Z. So he called Jay, let him know, oh, my friend Corinne's, oh, sorry, she's still going by Yzette in L.A. at this time. So all these guys were calling her Yzette. Okay. So she was like, my friend Yzette's going to be working on your video. So when she showed up on set, she immediately went over to Jay, introduced herself, and he was like, hey, like, stand by me all day. So she says that, and I found this really interesting. She says that the atmosphere between her and the other girls on set, there was like, um, it was kind of hostile almost immediately. Interestingly, she says that most girls on music video shoots were reserved and never fraternized with the artists and kind of looked down not only on women who did, but the artists themselves. But for Corinne, that's where the fun was she wanted to hang out with the musicians yeah so she did just that and she also picked out the skimpiest bikini she could find and her and jay-z got along really well and um she met another man his partner damon dash who comes into the story again later in her life but at some point they were driving from the house set to the beach set or something and jay-z was like hey like come in the back of the car with me and of course no surprise they got it on um she says over the next few years they remained acquainted when they would run into each other at like shoots and events and she says unlike some of the others there were no games no long phone conversations and no dates jay made no professions of love for me nor did he make any promises it was what it was nothing more cool yeah so if we look at that music video she's the one in the skimpy bikini dancing beside jay the whole time i mean they're all like that. So you can, I definitely spotted her in that video. There's another video that I'll talk about later though, that you, everyone's got to look up after. Okay. So yeah, that was Corinne's introduction into hip hop video making. And from there it was basically full steam ahead. She was getting calls from top casting directors at least once a week. And she rarely had to audition a week after Hey Poppy. She was on set for none other than jaw rules between <laughs> me and you. Okay, so she hadn't spoken to him since that their fight and the split and everything. So she was a little worried about it. But when she showed up, she was one of the early ones. So she was like, I'm going to get into a sexy bikini and just work on my tan for a bit. And she actually decided to tan topless. And she knew what she was doing. She was yeah. grabbing the attention of everyone working, especially the director. 
And that was beneficial, right? She says that, of course, the other women were kind of appalled and giving her looks, but she didn't care about them. There was one woman on set, though, named Keisha, who she had met before and who worked alongside Irv Gotti, who was the CEO of Murder, Inc. Now, Keisha didn't like Corinne, and she ended up calling Irv, getting him to come on set, and he t- she told Irv that Corinne was there because she was planning to rob Ja Rule. Oh, no. Yeah. This gets so much worse. I'm sorry. So Irv comes, escorts Corinne out, and Corinne's, like, begging him to stay. Her biggest issue really was just Ja thinking there was truth to that. So Irv turns into a major slimeball predator here and says, No. Yeah. If you really mean what you say, then show me. No. Yeah. So she says... Unfortunately, this was a familiar scene to me. There in the trailer, I apologized to him for anything I might have done or even the things I had not, and he forgave me. Obviously. Acting like I'm surprised, like, oh, but it's unfortunately like. Yeah. She got. That this. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And she got to stay because of that. And. I thought it was also interesting that she added this because it created a little bit of like a silent feud between her and Keisha because now Keisha was kind of overruled. Right. But she says, not only did she not replace me on the video set, but I replaced her as Gaudi's lover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Corinne goes back to that guy. It's funny mm-hmm. how back then our disdain for each other seemed important and just, but in retrospect, We weren't that different after all. We were both smart women who deserved so much more than feuding about who stayed on a video shoot and who got priority in Gotti's bed. Totally. Which is so true. But again, I mean, that's the damage of abuse there too, right? Like, Exactly. So the shoot went well after that. She was able to resolve her issues with Ja. And more importantly, she developed a professional relationship and friendship with the director who she would go on to work with in many other videos. How about we play a little bit of Ja Rules Between Me and You? I remember seeing that music video on Much Music. Oh, I remember it well. Okay. Don't let the word get out, baby. This is strictly between me and you, baby. If they knew we were doing what we were doing. I find it very hilariously ironic to play a song about how everything that we do is between me and you. <laughs> yeah, when he's <laughs> keeping it between everyone in LA. Yeah. Or she was learning quickly what videos and people she wanted to work with, which was, of course, like the biggest names and the biggest budget ones. She also made sure to be the most outrageous woman on set up for anything. I'll wear whatever you want, whatever the other girls don't want. She says, I knew such behavior would increase my worth as a performer and there I would be able to command more money above and below the table while pleasing both artists and label alike. Now, that's exactly what happened on set of Mystical's song, Danger. 
It was a very chilly day in the desert. They were filming at this old dusty saloon place and everyone was miserable. Wardrobe were asking the woman if any of them would consider wearing these pasties with their Western and styled outfits. Mm-hmm. All refused. But when she saw those big gold star pasties and the chaps, she was like, this is my outfit. <laughs> As usual, the women were appalled, but mystical was very happy and not only did it catch the attention of literally everyone who's ever watched that video and that's the video that you all need to go out look up right now you can't miss her mtv was on the set filming a documentary called when sex goes pop and they asked her for an interview before they even asked nivia who was um a woman who was featured like her singing was featured in the song Mm -hmm. so As Corinne says, it was a testament to the old adage that sex sells. Yeah. Corinne talks about how she knew her onset behavior was looked down on by the professional woman, but that it never bothered her because firstly, she was not used to having female friends. And secondly, she felt it was the men's acceptance that she needed in order to position herself both professionally and financially to secure that future that she wanted for her and her son. It's not the women paying her So she ended up spending a couple nights with Mystical while they were filming that together. And he gave her a financial raise, as she put it. She says that she was making around $1,500 a day for a minimum of two days up to that point. But after the Danger video came out and the MTV documentary where they interviewed her, When Sex Goes Pop, her rate doubled. So she was clearly on to something. Another man was about to enter Corinne's life, courtesy of a blind date set up by a mutual friend. So he was to pick her up, and I'm quoting, When I opened my front door, I was floored. It was NBA superstar Shaquille O'Neal. So he came into her condo, which was practically bare still, since she'd spent so much time at other people. She never really settled in, and he immediately hands her a couple hundred dollars. And then the next day, he arranged for $10,000 to be put into her account. As she put it, Shaq was very upfront about the way our relationship would be. I won't be able to come see you a lot, so I'll just write you checks and keep you happy, he said. She says even though they slept together that first night, they would only sleep together two or three times over the next four months of their relationship. Uh, But with that money, yeah. Yeah. With that money did come rules, but she was able to buy her son his first bedroom set and furniture, and she got the house fixed up, basically. Shaq requested a larger couch for his comfort when he was there and a big screen TV. She says he also insisted she hire someone to clean, and she he didn't want her to cook. He also demanded that she not go out at all or speak to anyone, especially okay. about him. Yeah. But by this point, of course, she was over being a puppet for men and she really did not want to give up the freedom. So that strained their relationship. (laughs) Now, around this time, Corinne was at Sky Bar with a friend who introduced her to a man named Gary Gray. So over the course of the night, Corinne would impress Gary, who happened to be a film director. He ended up calling her, asking if she would read for a part that he thought she'd be good in in his next film called A Man Apart. 
She got the part within a few weeks. She was at her first table read with the cast. She writes about how she always dreamed of getting a chance like this, but never really thought it was an achievable goal. So for her, this was like a huge deal. And she really took it as a sign of like, I'm moving forward in my life. All the negative things are, you know, I've experienced, you know, like they're, they're in the past now. This is a new start. She was playing the wife of actor Lorenz Tate, who, by the way, in the 90s, I had a huge crush on. Mm -hmm. He played O-Dog in Menace to Society, which is a fantastic film. And, uh, oh, yeah, he's definitely a cutie. Um, she says he was grounded and humble and a real gentleman, and he made the job easier. Their relationship remained professional, though. And she was actually told by the director, Gary, that if she wanted to have successful pictures, to never have a sexual relationship with a co-star or anyone on set. But... That didn't last long because the lead in the film, Vin Diesel, they were making eyes at each other and locking lips by the end of the first night of shooting. Making eyes and locking lips. Yes. So she gives him a glowing review of their time together, which pretty much only lasted like during the shoot. She was so excited to be moving on up in the world, but she had this really hard come down after filming wrapped. She kind of felt depressed. Films take a long time to process too and everything right so she ended up kind of going back into the hip-hop world but there were other issues at this point she had really become accustomed to that kind of lifestyle and was now becoming addicted to so many things she was addicted to partying she was addicted to the drugs the alcohol the sex spending money like everything and because of that, she ended up back with that gross asshole CEO of Murder, Inc. from the Ja Rule video shoot, Irv Gotti. Yeah. She says, I did whatever he asked of me and he would take care of me financially for the time I spent with him in Murder, Inc. I was part of something when I was with them, but I was also a drug addict and alcoholic. I feel like for her, a lot of that fix also was like, she felt she was part of a crew and that's like I think she wanted the friendships and stuff there too she says there was more sex more intoxicants more unsavory behavior I was paid to be the bad girl but as long as I wanted I would have done whatever it took to stay in the mix so yeah she really talks about how you know at this point in her life she was that she was writing the book things were going on that really kind of seemed unimaginable to her at this point in her life but at the time because of like everything going on it seemed normal and like right you know mm -hmm. so basically Gotti ended up paying her to be the party girl for him and his friends and yeah she just kind of got stuck because she became addicted to that lifestyle and felt she had to do whatever was necessary to maintain that so she quickly became Gotti's favorite showpiece as she puts it he had a wife and kids as well, and she says the wife even knew about the relationship, if you can call it that. She says, I was his party favor, and I became the new form of payola with label and radio heads. Whenever there was someone he wanted to impress, he would send me over and I would take care of them. So wow. one of these people, yeah. This is an interesting form of sex work. It is. It is. And I think you it's know, like, interesting is the right word. It's just, I've never really thought about it that way. And 
I think it's interesting too because we also know about her history and how like she wants to feel special and she, she feeds off other people giving her her confidence because she hasn't really built it up on her own quite yet. It's complex. Yeah. But again, I'm sure there were other women that have similar stories, but they I don't think she really realized I'm I'm a party girl and I'm getting paid to be that at the time. Like I feel like maybe she for her it was like she wanted to be friends with these people so much, but the money part and getting paid, I think that's what makes a distinction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, there feels like there's like an element of even like of trafficking in here, you know? It is like, it is such an interesting, I was really fascinated that reading this book and especially even with like Shaq paying her, obviously these men, like that's what they're used to in relationships too. Like that's not, like they're, they're doing what they want. These women aren't forcing money out of these guys, right? Like they want to be paying. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So one of the people that Gotti wanted her to impress was Sean Puff Daddy P. Diddy Combs. One night they're all out. They're at the club. Diddy grabs Corinne and says, I want you. Can I have you? And then he turned to Gotti and was like, oh, my bad. Is this you? And he was like, no, nah, it's cool. This is Yazette. She's cool people. And then Diddy asked, can she come with me? Which, again, the men are talking here, not her, which interesting. Mm-hmm. Gotti told Diddy, give me your address. I'll send I'll send her over later, basically. She did want to go, though. Like, she wanted to be with him. It's just bizarre to me that the men went through each other while she was standing right there. But again, it's like they... It's like this must be normal enough in that scene where Diddy felt like, oh, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed, I'm supposed to go through Gotti for this. Yeah, I mean, Gotti sounds like a, like maybe what a pimp. Yeah, it does too. It, yeah, it's interesting. So yeah. anyway, she goes to Diddy's house. She slept with him. He invited her back for brunch the next day. It's interesting because Gotti did not like that, and she actually says. He always wanted to present me as his resident whore, but hated it when anyone actually wanted to keep me around, which happened quite often. He almost relished the idea of people using me and then throwing me away like yesterday's newspaper. So interesting. But yeah, she has nice things to say about Diddy for those who are interested. He was a gentleman. He seems more down to earth than the others she was kind of used to partying with at the time. But her partying is getting much heavier now. She says she was taking like multiple ecstasy pills a day, plus all this booze. She says every night was a party for her and she was becoming less of a person and a mother. She says sometimes she didn't even see her son for weeks or months at this point. But thankfully her nanny basically adopted her son during this time all the partying was really taking a huge effect on her mental and physical health of course by 2001 her eyes were kind of opening up to things and she realized maybe i need help maybe i need to change some things after one hard night of partying she ended up calling little x who was the director of that mystical video She basically told him everything that she'd been going through. He asked her questions that no one had ever asked her. And that's kind of scared her. Like, why are you living this way? Do you think these people love you? What is it you want out of this? And things like that, again, to kind of get to open her eyes a little bit about, you know, things are a little distorted here. Am I really happy? Like, maybe not. 
But of course, addiction is a hard thing to face. And she still had a little bit of a ways to go with that. But she's questioning things now, I guess. By April 2001, after four months after filming A Man Apart, she was basically penniless again due to her drug and alcohol addiction, which was costing her about 500 a day. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, bills were piling up. She wasn't working at all. She accumulated multiple cars she couldn't afford, you know, gifts from guys sometimes or whatever. And she was still getting paid here and there by the men around her, but she would be throwing it out just as quickly. She says she was completely delusional and she knows she was irresponsible. But being around all these rich and famous people for so long distorted everything. And that was just the norm for her suddenly her cars got repossessed she couldn't afford her place anymore she began making the rounds of these men you know shock gaudy all these and all of them kind of basically refused to help her well probably when she was kind of coming up from a place that she thought was power she was appealing and then now if she's coming from a place of desperation they're like we for sure don't want this around us because exactly exactly at first we felt maybe the only way we could get you is if we did these things and gave you these things because she's obviously like beautiful and sought after and then all of a sudden when you lose that confidence and you're I don't know well you really tough you nailed it she said over the past year I had done what was asked of me in order to keep the men in my life happy and in hopes that they would always accept me and want me around. I was the life of the party and the ultimate party favor and showpiece, but now I was a person with issues. When I had a problem and was no longer the carefree addict they had all come to know, they didn't want me around. The same men who gave me thousands for shopping sprees and fantasy sex capades were now donating maybe two or three hundred to help my plight. I was getting less money in my time of need than when I was everyone's favorite whore. Wow. Yeah. But that's the thing, right? Like they're paying for a service, I guess. But at the time, you think you're part of the group. You're part of the crew. Like you're all having fun together. Then, yeah, no one wants you around when you got issues. So in order to get back on her feet, she really felt she had no choice but to kind of pretend everything was fine and get back into the game, as she puts it. She said, to stay afloat, I had to hustle once again. I would soon turn back to the very men who had used me before and who wouldn't help me when I needed help the most. I went back to being Gaudi's prostitute, sleeping with men in the industry, both artists and execs for which I received money. By October 2001, she was really at an all-time low with everything she was going through. One night, she was at Mr. Chow with the Murder, Inc. crew, and she got particularly messed up on some drug that Ja just kind of handed her. And she had multiple drug-related seizures in the bathroom, and there was no one around to help her. And finally, one of the Murder, Inc. crew people came and found her. They took her to a hotel, and they just left her at the hotel and all went out to party. Yeah. So she says, obviously, she felt so alone. She ended up calling her dad telling him about the seizures and everything and all he said was it's late call me tomorrow or something she says she had no one exactly she had no one she says i had known i was alone before but that night it made painful was made painfully clear just how alone i was i cried all night until i finally fell asleep poor thing yeah so over the next few months she tried to get help where she could she was introduced to 
Magic Johnson, another NBA star who helped her and her son out, kind of made sure she was taken care of. She says he helped enough to get them through but she was really you now realizing like I need to take responsibility. I need to find a way to change my life for me and my son. I need to take care of me type of thing. So she began dancing again. She met an attorney there. He would take her out to dinner every weekend and give her $2,500. And that was enough to help her stop dancing again and kind of focus on things that she wanted to be doing, which was auditioning and writing. Another regular she met helped her by giving her a place to stay until she finally got a $10,000 tax check from the film that she worked on a man apart with that she set out to find her own place which wasn't easy thanks to her credit rating but she found one she moved in February 21st 2002 she says I was determined to do better to reflect on my life pinpoint my mistakes and make them worth the pain. I would start by no longer being identified as Yazette Santiago because Yazette wasn't real. Yazette thought she was invincible, but her behavior led to an immense self-destruction that not only tore apart her life, but the life of the boy who depended on her. It was time for me to stop being afraid to be myself. I welcomed back Corinne Stefan. Good. Yeah. It wasn't like she was suddenly over her issues. She definitely had slip ups with the drugs and alcohol and also talks about becoming a cutter for a bit during this period. Uh, She has a line in the book that I liked about how she realized that for the rest of her life, she would be under construction, which I think goes for all of us. Um, She talks about a good friend of hers named Merlin Santana who she was getting close to and he was murdered around that time, which kind of really affected her. That was sort of like her ultimate in a way where it kind of solidified an end of an era for her. She was still dating rappers and everything though. In like 2002, she began seeing DMX. She describes him as very loving. She has this story in the book about them hanging out at the Saddle Ranch restaurant on Sunset and that he bought her a hundred roses and nicknamed her the baby. I just thought that was funny because we drove by Saddle Ranch a couple times. It was that crazy like ranch place with like cowboys and things yeah, outside. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. About. She also dated Bobby Brown for about six months, and he sounds like exactly how you'd expect, like a fucked up, superbly paranoid mess. And I guess this was while him and Whitney were going through issues. I'll save that for people who want to read the book. Basically, he was just a nutcase. She says that that was the last time she would have a relationship with a married man. I'm not sure if that's changed since the book was released, though. So two and a half years after A Man Apart was filmed, it was finally released. She said, the premiere gave me a grand sense of accomplishment that fulfilled me more than any man ever could. So over the next few months, Corinne worked really hard forming a plan for her life, cleaning up her credit and finances. She even opened up her own massage company for a time and saved up that money before shutting it down to focus on her writing again. She says Method Man was really supportive and helped her out here and there when she needed it. He was now married at this point. While she began writing, she shared her life story with a couple of her friends, including Damon Dash, the guy who was Jay-Z's partner, and another business partner of Queen Latifah's. And they both really encouraged her, like, you got to write this book. Like, you got to. So that's when she kind of started seeing her life story as this cautionary tale for women. And she really wanted to share these stories for those 
out there who find this hip-hop lifestyle alluring and everything. She said, This marked the beginning of a new era of my life, and suddenly the pain of my past didn't haunt me as much. In... Mm. Yeah. In February of 2004, she was featured in the Hollywood swimsuit issue of Smooth Magazine. She used that momentum to launch another business, a clothing line, which she actually did call Superhead. She says, taking ownership, of, it. Yes, taking ownership of my life felt good. Instead of hiding from my past, I wanted to face it and show other women that no matter how one's life may have started out, it's never too late to grow and change. Ironically, my darkest days would be the fuel to this new fire in my life. So she ends the book by saying, although the quality of my life has changed, I still enjoy an exciting lifestyle with celebrity colleagues, friends, and lovers. The difference is that now I am my own woman and I look for no one to complete me. I make my own living and I'm fully aware of my worth. Still, my life is not perfect and naturally I make mistakes from which I can only hope to learn. What an incredible story. Oh, yeah. So that book came out in 2006 and she's definitely had many high profile relationships since then, which I'm sure in her other books, she's got like five. No, I think she's got like seven books. Really? Yeah, she's. And now she's a self-made millionaire. No. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. So some other high-profile men that she's had relationships with are Usher. He, She's in this book. She kind of ends it with him. He doesn't sound like a great guy. They fought a lot. Uh, I was also intrigued to learn that she dated Bill Maher for, I think, like a year, just because okay. he's so different. But she says that they or they seem to have ended on good terms and she kind of calls him like a friend and a mentor. She also dated Bow Wow, Soldier Boy. There's tons of videos online of her and a highly well-known affair with Little Wayne. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for those interested, it's, it's insane how many YouTube videos there are of her actually like lots of her discussing everything, which was really cool to see. She was also married to Darius McCrary for a a couple of years he was on family matters but from what i've gathered it was another abusive relationship so it's good that they split while i was researching this book because she dated so many of these rapper men who had wives i was curious about those women as well and i learned that especially in the hip-hop community there are so many rappers out there like ja rule dmx snoop dogg who have been with women that were with them before they got famous, before the money, the women that kind of took care of them before they made it big and they're still with them. Yet all of these men also have these other affairs. And in August of 2006, Vibe magazine published an article called Behind Closed Doors that talks to some of those wives. And I found it was interesting because they do mention Corinne in it because this book was like a huge deal when it came out because it was the first time really in like the rap world that any woman was coming forward and talking about what's going on behind the scene. And I thought it was interesting because Ja Rule and DMX's wives uh, actually tear her up and are like, I don't believe it, blah, blah, blah. Though I'm pretty sure Corinne would have been sued by now by these men if she couldn't back up her stories, right? Yeah, I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I thought it was interesting I, get, I mean, I also get like why you wouldn't want to be thinking about your husband doing those kinds of things. But mm -hmm. I just found it fascinating that so many of them stick with, the, the, you know, the, their first love, I guess. And 
unfortunately not a lot of them have written books, but there are a couple. Uh, and hopefully in the future, if they do feel like writing them, they will. I haven't read any other books of Corinne's, but I would definitely be interested in doing so because what an insane story, you know? Self-made millionaire now. Woo. Yeah. Definitely going to go check out some of those music videos and some of her YouTube interviews. So thanks for sharing that story. Thanks. Uh, what was the, can you repeat the name of her book again? Confessions of a Video Vixen. That's her first one. Okay. Look her up on YouTube. There's just so much and it's really fascinating. And I'm glad she told her story and uh, I loved reading it. I was Well, maybe we can interview her. Uh, that would be so much fun. We always like to start off by reading the books ourselves and then so then because when you interview somebody you want to have read their books anyways yeah so now that we have um for sure an episode done maybe we can reach out to her in the future let's let's try it for sure let's try a no is free exactly all right so much links you're welcome that's great Thanks for listening and have a good day and check out our Patreon. Check out our website. We've been posting blog posts. We got some articles up. We got some interviews, plenty of new stuff going up and sign up for our newsletter because Shanti's been making the best newsletters. All right. Yeah. There's another one coming out in the next couple of days. So sign up for that and you'll get a little love letter in your inbox. All right. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks. That was fantastic. Well, thank you. And we'll see you next time, everybody. From the slums of Shaolin, Wu-Tang Clan strikes again. The RZA, the Jizza, old dirty bastard, inspector deck, make porn the chef. You guard, ghost face killer, and the master. M-E-T-H-O-D, man. M-E-T-H-O-D, man. M-E-T-H-O-D, man. Hey, you, get off my ground. You don't know me and you don't know my staff. We'll be getting fun when they come to a jam. Here I am, here I am. The method man, patty cake, patty cake, hey, the method man. No need skip, be jeff or beat the pan. Peanut you know butter, cause I'm not butter. In fact, I snap back like a rubber man. I be Sam, Sam or damn, and I don't eat green eggs and ham. Now the Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.